Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Adam Davis and joining me this week, through the miracle of satellite technology, is Matt Risby. Hi Matt. Hello. And Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Hello, I'm well thanks. How are you? Good. It's very rainy and cold here in Florida so I apologise to anyone who happens to hear the pitter-patter of rain in the background of of my recording. Uh, It cannot be helped. I do not control the weather yet. That's my goal. That's on my mood, my uh, vision board for 2019. Yeah, you can geostorm it up. Uh, a treat. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we should have like a mood sound for everyone. So like for Emily, it'll be the chattering of her teeth as uh, as she was explaining <laughs> off air that her heating has gone. Uh, and for me, it could be the grind of the pump in my basement that shoots water out the front of the house. Mm. And for you, it's the pitter patter of rain and probably alligators, maybe. I don't know, I guess. Yeah, falling from the sky like in uh, <laughs> the more extreme remake of Magnolia. Oh, man, could you imagine? Yeah, I mean, it's been 20 years. I think it's time for the CGI re-release a la E.T. Mm. We're going to replace all the frogs of alligators this time, because that's what we would have done if we'd had the budget. Mm. Isn't one of the characters in it called Jimmy Gator? Most likely. That sounds like a, that. an L.A. name. Yeah. No, it's... Uh, uh, what's his face? Um... Philip, not Philip Seymour Hoffman, the other one with three Oh, names. Philip Baker Hall? Him. Yeah, his name's Jimmy Gator. Nice. That that movie is layered. It even includes jokes that they didn't know we would make 20 years later. Mm, like that uh, Radiohead album that syncs up with OK Computer. Like, <laughs> ten, 10 years later, it's like, ah, you know, we made a secret extra album if you combine, combine these. Mm, yeah, fair. Uh, yeah, in terms of... Uh, Great names. I was talking to friend of the show, Jack Roden, on uh, Facebook the other day about American politicians, which is what we spend most of our time talking about. Um, got onto the subject of West Virginia Governor Jim Justice, who is a real <laughs> a real politician in West Virginia. Um, that, He's not going to be a plumber, is he? That, guy? <laughs> that like, That's almost prodigally American as a politician, in the same way Jacob Rees-Mogg like, is just too English a name not to be an MP. Jim Justice had to be a governor at some point. <laughs> Mm, yeah. It's, I think I like baseball player names. Mm. They've always got the best names. Goose Gossage. That's Ooh. a name. Catfish Hunter. Satchel Page. These are all real baseball. I'm not making it up. It's not yeah. off that Japanese game. That's a joke. <laughs> uh, those are real players um, that had actual names. On this week's show, we're going to be talking about the Oscars, which were announced earlier in the week. But before then, we've got some news out of Sundance, which has started up. And uh, none of us are in attendance, but we're following along with people, uh, people's, you know, posting reviews and things online. And also following the uh, announcement of the 4% campaign, which is a campaign being launched to try and improve the truly dire state of representation of women behind the camera in Hollywood, as we've talked about on the show before. The 4% campaign is aiming to get people with in positions of power in the film industry, so actors, producers, other directors and writers, to work with female directors and particularly women of colour to try and improve the statistics uh, as stated in kind of the the basic manifesto of the, the initiative, which takes its name from the fact that since 
2008, I think, or 2012, like only 4% of the top grossing movies in, produced by Hollywood were directed by women, and they're aiming to uh, improve that. Mm. It's the last decade, is the stat, right. only 4% in the last decade, so yeah. This kind of goes back to something that uh, you and I were talking about, Emily, a few weeks ago about when when the statistics for movies directed by women in 2018 were released about how the problem with improving representation is that you really need to have a a concerted effort and kind of something with a clear vision like this that pushes back against you know the system systemic problems with getting women into positions where they can direct movies and this certainly feels like a step in the right direction and and you are getting people like Kerry Washington and Brie Larson who are now in positions where they you know maybe have a little more sway being able to do something about the lack of women behind the camera in Hollywood. This may be not what you're expecting me to say but I don't Mm -hmm. feel great about this. Sure. I feel like it is essentially lip service and i think it's a lot of people Mm. doing what they would be doing anyway because i don't think it's any shock to anyone i don't think it's much skin off the noses of tessa thompson or reese witherspoon or a lot of people that they are essentially tagging across social media in the same way it almost feels like the als ice bucket challenge all over again like great i guess this is now very much in the forefront of everyone's minds and and publicity is a good thing but also i think if we're looking to actually change an industry i think publicity is all talk is cheap now it sounds a little bit i don't know i don't want to say like oh tessa thompson and reese with a spoon are already doing this kind of stuff and that's a bad thing for this that's not what i mean what i mean is the thing that feels quite hollow to me about this 4% challenge is that I don't think it's actually looking at the core root of the problem. I don't think the issue of why we don't have more films directed by women over the past 10 years within this studio, you know, the top 100 studio movies, the reason behind that is not for any lack of wanting to work with women Mm, directors. I, I don't think that's the core thing. I think it's it's a much more complex, many different factors. And to say as simply as like, I'm just going to commit to working with one woman director over the next 18 months. Mm. It's like, it, it takes six to eight weeks on average to shoot a feature film, right? And I mean, yes, I'm. this is a quite a big generalization and a generous median because, you know, certain films, post-production, you could argue. But in, in terms of the people who are at, we are actually talking about here, who are the most high-profile They are uh, actors who will be on set for a bit. Within 18 months, you can fit in a fair few six to eight week gaps. So to say that you're committed to working with one woman, to me is, I don't understand why that's something to shout about or be the spearhead Mm. of your campaign. Like, are you kidding? And it's not to say that Time's Up aren't doing brilliant things. Like in terms of their legal defense fund, I think that's brilliant direct activism in order to actually give legal aid to people who have been put back by sexually harassing or discriminatory men in the industry like more of that please but i this just seems like a big mishmash of things because then what what is our end goal here 
Like if we if we were to actually say like we want to make it eight percent over the next ten years, mm. something tangible because four percent is so low anyway. And like you and I, Ed, were saying on a um, not that long ago, the lifespan of a film in terms of um, we should hopefully be starting to see in the next couple of years, um, or at least even this year, the kind of what we have reaped from sowing a couple of years ago when the Weinstein allegations properly came out. And I think we will start to see this kind of bring up. But to be honest, I don't, I think we should all be incredibly sceptical of the what to me seems like internal backslapping of the four percent mm, challenge mm. like you say about the end result i mean it's easy to say yes i commit to it but what, what happens if you if you don't <laughs> you get <laughs> you just not you're just gonna be chucked out of hollywood yeah if you don't you have to sit in the naughty corner mm. it seems like a really odd way to go about it it's yeah. like i don't i don't know whether it would have been like better for some some kind of organization to put pressure on kind of hiring like you know make a studio hire x amount of non-male crew or something i don't know yeah. Do you know like what was that kind of inclusion rider thing that like was that mm. was very brief very briefly the last a year ago now wasn't it, it was yes. the oscars last year Francis we about inclusion riders, but like everyone's saying oh i'll sign up for that well, I, mean, I mean what even is it like what, like what is it now what does it mean now in 2019 what's the status of everyone's inclusion rider no it was just a buzzword that was said briefly everyone got on it and then here we are looking at a worse statistic yeah. than we were a year ago. And that's it. Mm. To me, it just seems like another wide sweep publicity stunt. I need for, for, and of course this is all about me and my approval, <laughs> but for me mm -hmm. to get behind it, for me to commit to the 4% challenge, I, then there needs to be again, less of this. In, and this is Hollywood is, absolutely brilliant at this it is brilliant at putting stuff at the forefront of doing a press release and then doing absolutely nothing in its actual processes like where's the legislation where again like you were saying matt like where, where are these process where does everything get contractually happening where where's mm. the punishment for discrimination and who do we mm. do that to? I don't even know. Um, mm. But yeah, I'm not, I don't feel great about this. And like you say, a year on from Inclusion Rider, why don't we look at that more? Because that works. And, you know, Jessica Chastain has been trucking along and, and writing people into her contracts. And I think that's it. That's your sway as a star, not to be like, I commit to working with one female director. Why not? If you want me in a film, Tessa Thompson, who is one hot property, be like, well, it is in my contract that I work with three female directors in the next six months. Get me a female director. And that's just not what the 4% challenge seems to be saying. Or, you know, like uh, Michelle Williams, who's like, okay, sure, I'll do Venom, but only because it means that I can get money in order to help Kelly Reichardt make another movie. Yeah, exactly. Which is at least a direct action sort of thing. Yeah, one for you, one for me. And Michelle Williams, let's not forget, who um, slashed her fee to um, 
just the equity standard for the reshoots of all the money in the world to respond mm. to, because she was so willing to change the film um, in order to get Kevin Spacey out of it. Mark Wahlberg didn't. Where's your 4% challenge, Mark Wahlberg? And I don't mean the percentage of body fat on your uh, living corpse. Mm-hmm. Or the percent of the day that he spends with his kids. Oh, of course. <laughs> yeah. The cryogenic yeah, he's a 96% recovery. workout type guy. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I uh, This just all seems like lip service to me. I look forward to being proven very wrong, but somehow I feel I won't be. Mm. It'd be good if, like, you saw on Twitter just a slew of producers and people who owned, like, production companies saying, yes, I pledge. But it's, like, actors and shit. Like, you know, you know, they are kind of, like, apart from kind of, like, the grips or whatever, they don't really have the power to to kind of kick off this type of change. No. Like, Army Hammer's going to say, all right, I'm going to commit to working with a female director in the next 18 months. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, every single script that's got a female uh, director attached to it is a heap of dog shit. What's he going to do? Just like, okay, I'll just do it anyway, just to tick it off my list. And that's not, that's not what it should be about. No. It should be about, like, oh, a studio has got lots of scripts floating around. We commit to attaching a female director to this. You know what I mean? It's the yeah. people in power that should be like signing up for this, not Army Hammer. <laughs> well, we have had some some producers have signed up to it, which at least is a step in the right direction. But yeah, you're right. Mm. Like a lot of the people, and like Emily said as well, like for actors to do it is it's a nice thing to say, but unless they are actors who are in a position where they actually run their own production company or whatever, it doesn't really mean that much if they commit to doing six to eight weeks on a film with with a director who happens to be a woman. Mm -hmm. Yep. And one of the other stories coming out of Sundance and a lot of the discussion around it was the premiere of the Joe Berlinger movie and second Ted Bundy project of the year for him, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil and Vile, which I had to write down because I got all of those (laughs) verbs and nouns mixed up several times when trying to say it earlier, Um, (laughs) which uh, stars Zac Efron as Ted Bundy, the uh, notorious serial killer. And a lot of the discourse around it has primarily been about the depiction of Ted Bundy in the movie as um, a kind of very charming, handsome man and the idea that the movie therefore... And not endorses is probably too strong, but certainly normalizes the violent misogynistic acts that he committed and, you know, the broader discussion about the way in which violence against women is depicted and used in movies. Uh, Elena Lazic, the uh, critic who writes so up for Little White Lies, had a string of tweets about this earlier. Basically, uh, the, the two sides of the debate, the debate are... Well, there's obviously multiple, but the kind of the two poles of it are on the one hand, people saying this normalizes acts of violence against women. And then on the other side, people like Elena Lazic saying, well, Ted Bundy was, by all accounts, a very charming, handsome man. And the reason why he was able to get away with it for so long was because he was very charming and handsome. And the discomfort of that is the important thing of telling his story. That, that Those are the poles of the, de- the, the debate, you know, does depicting the actions of someone who was a violent misogynist in some way normalise or endorse those actions, I guess. 
I very much wanted to be part of that latter camp in understanding how Bundy could kind of be a normal and even lauded man um, in his lifetime. Um, the opposite of, oh, you know, he kept to himself and no one knew him. Like he was integrated in his community. He had relationships. And I really wanted to see this film when I first heard about it because the way that it was described was very much from the point of view of his girlfriend. And I Mm -hmm. thought this could be a really interesting and sympathetic work that essentially shows the power of manipulation of these psychopathic men and how it is not the fault of women because it's just been so hidden from them. But from what I've heard coming out of Sundance, and I really recommend uh, Richard Lawson, the head critic at Vanity Fair, his review Mm. seems to, I think, sum it up for me because he says, you know, Zac Efron's performance is brilliant, but there's a little bit too much leaning on the side of, you know, it's, it's Bundy's story. It's still about him trying to evade incarceration and escaping the law and thinking that he's so brilliant. And by the end of it, Richard Lawson keeps asking, well, but what was the point of this? Fair enough. Mm. Okay. So it's well made and, and we've got this, but what, what's the point of this? And I always think that it's amazing that we're still making these kinds of films anymore when Zodiac has been made <laughs> because mm. Zodiac shows how you can make a film about a serial killer without glorifying them by showing that you do not equivocate mass hysteria and very well very understandable hysteria and a nationwide manhunt with glory those two are not the same things it is not looking into the it's it's trying to understand in order to um capture um it's not trying to pick apart and understand in order to um glorify a horrific mass murderer and their motivations that's not the point the point is you know how how significant they are and it is does not doubt their their the evil in their actions whatsoever so i don't know it would be interesting to see how how it actually shakes out but i i generally trust richard lawson and i have to say it's not looking great mm. Yeah, I mean, obviously none of us have seen the movie, so we're really speculating on what other people have said. And the more positive reviews of it I've read, it does seem to be uh, dividing somewhat along the similar lines to the divides we saw over um, The House That Jack Built, the Lars von Trier movie, where on one hand people were like, oh, it's depicting these acts of violence and they're really horrific and um, they're, you know, all these crimes against women and, you know, it's in some way justifying the main character's misogyny and then on the other hand were people saying like it's actually fairly excoriating about male privilege and the fact that particularly white male privilege and the fact that this character is able to go about his life in his day and committing horrible crimes including in one scene placing the a part of one of his victims on the hood of a police officer's car because the police officer is arresting a black person yeah. and and like that seems to be the core of it is that with any piece of art that that tries to tackle serial killers who are often by and large male and often committing acts of violence against women it's a really 
difficult thing to actually try and depict the inner life of that character without in some way glorifying them maybe uh, if that's yeah. too, maybe too strong a word or at the very least making them so sympathetic that it kind of makes you think oh they're just trying their best you know or whatever uh, uh, whereas you know the whole thing with Zodiac that's brilliant about Zodiac is that you don't see the killer you, he's a faceless figure and so it is more about the impact that he had on the people who investigated him on, and on his victims and as soon as you put a human face to those sort of killings I think you see a very different tone immediately will come into those works and i've been reading Anne rule's book the stranger beside me which is kind of a legendary somewhat infamous true crime book about her relationship with ted bundy because she was friends with him just prior to you know his his killing spree uh, escalating in the early 70s and what's really compelling about that is it is a story told from her point of view as someone who knows Bundy and finds herself at various times kind of unwilling to believe that he could have done these things even though the evidence is pretty strong you could see someone making a really compelling story out of that perspective out of the perspective of someone if you also then don't see the killings being committed by Bundy if it's more about this person's doubts about what the the man in the, her life or all this man in her life has done like that maybe could get across the idea of like oh he's so charming no one could believe him a little better than um what the the movie seems to have done or certainly and certainly what the trailer seems to have done because i don't yeah. know if you guys have seen the trailer for it but the trailer Ooh, um not, not good yeah it veers a little too much into like David, the David O. Russellisms of a lot of American period crime movies of the last couple of years, which is like, oh, look at this guy. He's like a an outlaw and there's lots of energy and there's kind of like a poppy soundtrack and he's strutting through corridors and all of this sort of stuff. And that really doesn't seem the right tone to take for the story one. of Ted Bundy as opposed to, you know, the the story of American Hustle or uh, White Boy Rick movie with Matthew McConaughey, which came out last year, which is kind of the most, or, or even I, Tonya, you know, like those are all movies that I kind of slot together under this this weird subgenre of people who have just been like, ah, it worked for David or Russell, let's just nick all of his kind of trite sub-Scorsese tricks. Mm. Mm. Let's not forget as well that Joe Berlinger hasn't made a non-documentary since Blair Witch Book of Shadows. Mm, yeah, so you you think he's going to ruin his his batting a thousand average? <laughs> yeah, but I, I'm kind of I was saying to these guys before we went on air that I'm just generally a bit confused as to why we're suddenly getting a lot of Ted Ted Bundy stuff. Mm. Um, and Ed brought up he, um, that he was like died like almost exactly. 30 years ago, is that right? Yeah, yeah, he was executed uh, on July, uh, January the 24th, 1989. Mm, it's all very macabre. Hmm, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I watched the, the first episode of the Bundy Tapes thing on Netflix, and I kind of have an issue with a lot of Netflix's true crime stuff in that they have somewhat of a reputation of squeezing, you know, an hour's worth of documentary into 10 hours' worth of television. And they seem to have done that very much here by really, really, really dragging out uh, in almost kind of like uh, insensitive detail um, mm. the the kind of 
the setup for the whole season, which is that, you know, there are some tapes that Bundy made when, you know, some reporters gave him the, the leeway and he at first regarded it as a vanity project and then decided to open up. Well, we've got Mindhunter, the TV show also on Netflix, which uh, whilst no one can accuse Mindhunter of being a, you know, rollicking, dynamic, 100 miles an hour show, also, like, is incredibly thoughtful, incredibly um, measured, and, you know, thinks about how and what angles it takes to talk about incredibly awful people. Hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, you don't want it to become, you know, you don't want Ted Bundy to ever be celebrated, ever. Um, Mm. You know, you don't ever want people to say, well, oh, he was the good-looking serial killer. You know, he, like, raped corpses. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Let's let's, let's keep that on the table first. And they were like, well, you know, we'll cast someone who's as good-looking as he. Well, it doesn't matter he raped corpses. Or he Mm -hmm. defended himself in court. He was very clever. He had a genius IQ. Again, <laughs> I don't want to labour the point, but that person was dead and he had sex with him. That's not mm. good. Mm. Yeah. So our main topic of discussion, as I said, so, uh, was the Oscars, the Oscar nominations specifically, which were announced earlier this week to a massive collective shrug from uh, the internet in general. So, so we're going to kind of talk about them in kind of the macro view of, you know, how we feel about the them overall, and then kind of zero in on some of the nominations that maybe we feel a little bit better about, or some that we feel worse about. And I think to kick us off, I think there's a, there's a weird, uh, there's a weird dissonance for me in these Oscar nominations. Cause if you look at like the top line numbers of like what films were nominated for the most Oscars, it's like, Oh, the favorite. I really liked the favorite. Roma, which I didn't love as like a lot of people, but I think is a really beautifully made film and deserving of all the recognition it's getting, and that's that's great. So I think okay, like you and usually every year, like at least one of the top nominated movies is one that I just a flat out hate, and mm-hmm. um, so it's nice that the two are ones I can think, oh yeah, cool, they got that right. But like the totality of the nominations for me just feel like so mediocre and so unrepresentative of what was maybe not a banner year but certainly a year that had a lot of really cool interesting stuff that i really enjoyed and was really uh, excited about seeing represented at the oscars most of which has been shoved out in favor of you know green book and vice and bohemian rhapsody Mm. can i can i just before we get into the oscar talk can i just commend ed and draw everyone Mm. at home uh, listening to this podcast, Ed's professionalism and skill in segueing <laughs> so hard from raping corpses <laughs> to the Oscars uh, without even missing a beat. Um, mm-hmm. that, <laughs> that is not uh, an easy shift through the gears. Ed. And uh, I thought you, you, you pulled it off with a plum. Yeah, I definitely went from one to five there. <laughs> and somehow didn't stall out. But, but yeah, what do what do you guys? What are your guys' thoughts on the nominations? Well, I, mean, I feel the same every year. That like I get really excited when I see one or two things, and then that excitement really quickly dies down when I realise that the other hundred and fifty things that are nominated are all so grimly predictable. Mm. And then I think about, oh god, someone actually watched this and thought, do you know what? That's better than you were never really here. 
or mm. you know X insert name and film X that from that year, which was distinct, unique, and exciting and bold. And every every year, no matter how kind of like excited I get by the fact they talk about they're going to diversify the voter pool and kind of get more people and younger people and a more international feel. It's still always the same fucking films. Yeah. And it's, 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 it never gets any better. And I always, like the Oscars is like, you know, you know, that ex-girlfriend you keep going back to. And like, I keep thinking this next time it'll be different, but it's not, it's green book. <laughs> it's yeah. just upsetting you know it's like will there ever be a year where like all of the best picture nomination uh, all the best picture nominations are super distinct experimental inventive interesting movies or will they just be the blandest shit imaginable mm. because it's supposed to celebrate the best of film not what was popular well we had a touch of that Last year, did we not? Uh, I mean, a grasp of it. I feel much the same as you, Matthew. Not denying mm-hmm. that. I mean, more like Oscar vominations. Am I right? <laughs> Thank you. Hey, uh, mm. just sitting on that all week. But I think you're right. I feel much the same. I think there's just a real kind of mehness to it all, isn't there? And Looking at Best Picture in particular, there's a couple that are, are really, really stand out. I mean, I, I don't think we've managed to see a Best Picture nominations within one category that are actually like as, as this is pretty wide and varied mm. as I think we're possible of getting. And yet it seems like with everything being together, it's all just neutralised somehow. Like, mm. I, I love that The Favourite is nominated. Um, I think it's an incredibly um, salty and entertaining movie. And I haven't seen Roma yet, but obviously that's like, in, in terms of what I have seen, it looks incredible and epic. And then you've got A Star is Born, which is, okay, more your kind of maybe La La Land style fame and very American and then Black Panther and then Grief. I don't know. It it just all seems everything and nothing all at once. Mm. You like you think you see Black Panther in there and you're like, oh that's that's you know good for Black Panther. That's kind of cool. But then you're like it's just like a token nomination for doing well. That's what happens. Uh, the when you've got ten up to ten films to nominate you can chuck in the one there that like, well, if we didn't nominate it, like, you know, we didn't, you know, it did like a a billion and a half dollars, a billion and a half dollars at the box office. Like it would be shit if it didn't get nominated. You think at the same time it's nominated for stuff like production design, all the technical awards. You're like, oh, awesome. Like that was a really distinctive looking movie. Why it's not been nominated for cinematography. That's a separate matter. But like the best picture nominated, it's not going to win. Black Panther's going to win Best Picture. It's ridiculous. It's crazy. No. Like, but, you know, it's nice to see it in there, but, like, it just feels like it's going to have to come out and, you know, with a shitty grin and be like, hey, we got invited this year. Nice one. And you know what would be really, really horrible? I, I hope it doesn't happen, but what if Green Book wins the same year that Black Panther and Black Klansman 
are nominated in the same category. Mm. I mean, that is going to be a film A-level question for years to come. Mm. <laughs> Discuss. Yeah. yeah, it does feel, it does, everyone's made this observation, but it is quite funny that, you know, 30 years ago, Driving Miss Daisy won and Do the Right Thing wasn't even nominated. And now it's it's a, a baby step in the right direction. <laughs> they actually were like, yeah, Spike Lee, good filmmaker. Maybe we should recognise him for that. And like, Black Klansman, for me, wasn't one of his best movies, even best recent movies, but like, I was happy to see him get recognised for it and for that film in particular for being like a very, a, a kind of a spikier movie than you would necessarily think the Academy would go for. Like that mm-hmm. feels like that feels like them going out on more more of a limb than Black Panther because like Black Panther, like you say, hugely successful movie. Like it makes sense from the if you're going to apply like the Avatar standard for a movie getting nominated for Best Picture, which is a movie that's such a cultural phenomenon and generally well liked enough that it would it would seem crazy if you not to nominate it. Mm, yeah, but in in terms of like the other films, you've kind of got a bit of box ticking going on. You've got the, Mm. you know, the uplifting uh, kind of story about race written by a white person. Yeah. You've got the, you know, biopic about someone who's still alive. Tick a biopic about someone who's dead. Tick. It's yeah, it's pretty dull. Um, the, the remainder of the list, which weirdly makes the favorite and black Klansman stick out like sore thumbs. But yeah, it's interesting that a lot of the, the kind of the, I always find it very unusual. The director, best picture, they they don't cross over a lot of the time. Like uh, Pavel Pavlovsky getting nominated for Cold War, but yet Cold War didn't manage to get in the ten films nominated for best picture, even though they only nominated eight. Mm. Yeah, it seems yeah. like they very easily because there was always there's always that uh, you know that weird thing of like oh someone get a film gets nominated for best director but not the film, which is just a very odd way of doing it. Uh, I mean, you can have a Best Picture. You often see Best Picture nominated, but the director isn't nominated because, you know, it might not be something that is particularly exciting or a tourist. I'm perhaps being a little too kind to the Academy there. Looking at you, Tom Hooper. <laughs> but yeah, like, the other way around just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Mm. Yeah, and, and someone also pointed out that on Twitter today that, like, the up to 10 thing as opposed to a hard 10 does result in like weird things like that because you would think if he if Paul Pavlovsky is getting nominated for best picture then there must be a fairly decent part of the voting body that also voted for Cold War for best picture and mm. maybe it would be maybe it would fall into the 9 or 10 slot maybe like can you ever forgive me if it's getting nominated for acting and writing maybe that would have got into the 10 slot so it seems like the arbitrary cutoff that they've decided of like sometimes it's ten, sometimes it's not, doesn't seem to help them in terms of increasing the diversity. So it does feel as if this this particular aspect of their you know the size of the category does seem to hurt maybe the smaller movies that could probably stand with like the extra exposure which is kind of one of the things that the Oscars is meant to do. Yeah, I mean, Cold War gets a nod in Best Foreign Language Film, but then mm. so does Roma. Roma's nominated yeah. in Best Foreign Language Film and Best Film, which is something I don't particularly understand. 
Mm. I, I mean, that's all down to the country that submits it. So, right, like the the fact that Mexico submitted Roma uh, rather than, uh, and it also happens to be backed by you know Netflix, who have a lot of clout at this point, means mm-hmm. that you are going to end up in uh, a situation like that. It makes it's less to me. It's less of a weird situation than as we've discussed, like when a movie is nominated for best British movie and best film at the Baftas. Like that seems really weird to me. Like you could you could just take them out of best British and just mm-hmm. have them compete in best picture. It kind of feels like you're hedging your bet your bets because if a, a movie is nominated in both, it's pretty easy for everyone to just go, okay, we'll vote for it for best British and vote for something else in best uh, picture. Yeah, and, and mm. British, I think, um, for the BAFTAs, you know, it, it's a bit like, okay, so this is British made, but if it's more than likely to be funded by the BFI, does it mean certain British cultural things? And, mm. you know, I think the question, not to wade too deeply into the whole, oh, foreign versus American, but what what are the values in these films that aren't from America, what what is the kind of cultural value that they're placing on them by including them in foreign and in best picture? I think Roma's a really interesting example of that. And I wonder if it's because Alfonso Cuaron has almost kind of become in in a similar way to Guillermo del Toro, sort of like an adopted American in that way. Mm. Like they really like the way that they that that Del Toro and Cuaron spin the world and that's something that they kind of want to absorb and assimilate um but obviously Roma is such a an authored piece and it is about place and it is about a particular kind of culture so you just see how that spins out but yeah it it does feel much much bet hedging I agree I do find it quite funny like i have in my head uh, the image of like quaron and del toro and inaritu having like a very kind of friendly rivalry about who can have the most oscar nominations over the course of their career mm-hmm. and uh, i just like the fact that quaron's now pulled ahead because uh, <laughs> he got four for for this one so that gives him 10 over the course of his career and inaritu's only on eight although inaritu mm-hmm. has won more he's won four so, well, actually, no, he's won, I think he's won five because he got given, like, a special one for that 3D short film that he did a few years ago. So, mm. Quaron's got some catching up to do. What, what are we looking at as, kind of, what are the nominations that we like, that, that we are happy to see? I would have to say, uh, straight up, it would be um, in production design, Hannah Beachler for Black Panther. That's awesome. Mm. If she gets that, I, th- I think that is so, so, so deserved. And it's a really strong um, category this year. I mean, we can talk about what does it mean to be a best picture, but production design is something pretty tangible, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that you've got um, a couple of period films, one kind of period fantasy, well, pretty much actually, apart from Black Panther, sorry, just realising, four of them are, are period films, essentially, Two mm-hmm. are our sort of fantasy, and that's Black Panther and, and Mary Poppins. You've got, obviously, lots of different influences there. First Man, obviously, you've got your, your space. But I love Black Panther to win. I think Hannah Beachler is such a stunning talent, and the world of Black Panther in terms of, you know, Wakanda itself, and then how it crashes into or opens up to our current 
world as well. I think I think mm. that tone is held brilliantly. So I was super happy to see that, and I really hope she wins. Mm. Yeah, I'm I'm very excited about. I mean, there's lots of I think really good first time nominees this year. There's a lot of people who I think it's great that they're finally getting their the, the due attention for them. It's particularly people who've been around for a long time. Uh, I really love that Paul Schrader got nominated for First Reformed, his first Oscar nomination, which seems kind That's of insane. Mm. Yeah, considering, considering some of the stuff that guy's written. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's nuts that he, uh, he's had this long to wait, to wait for, for a nomination. I was really, 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 really pleased that Olivia Colman's got nominated for Best Actress because mm. I, think, I think there's kind of a weird um, debate to be had about who the lead of the favorite is um because mm. i think it's one of those things where you could say either they're all leads or they're all supporting because yeah. at various points in the movie the focus does shift and mm. if you had asked me walking out of that movie who i felt ended up being the lead i probably wouldn't have picked olivia coleman but i still think it's great that she's nominated even if there's some weird category chicanery going on there uh, i was really really happy to see like sam elliott's never been nominated for an oscar before and he finally got it mm-hmm. uh which is really fantastic uh, and i was quite happy to see uh minding the gap the documentary about skaters in uh, rockford illinois was nominated and that is uh, uh one of my absolute favorite movies of last year and i thought it was amazing to see that get nominated for an oscar uh, over something like uh, Won't You Be My Neighbour, which is a good movie, but a weird snub because everyone seemed to think it was going to walk away with the category this year and it didn't even get nominated. Mm. Um, I I kind of like the, the song category. Uh, we mm. have you know, Kendrick Lamar is now a, uh, a Oscar nominee. Oscar nominee, and that's a... I mean, we all know that's a banger, uh, that yeah. song. Also in there, the aforementioned on this show, I think, uh, Anthony Rosamundo of Dirty Pretty Things is now a mm. uh, uh, Oscar nominee. And uh, I did not realise this uh, until I just looked, because I saw the film this week, but in The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, um, the song that's nominated from that is written by David Rawlings and Gillian Welch, who are both mm. wonderful old country musicians, um, the latter especially, uh, and the former, if you want to hear him, arguing with David uh, with Ryan Adams in a lot of, a lot of his early albums um, <laughs> in, in the background. In fact, I think they've got a song called An Argument with David Rawlings about Morrissey, which kicks off his album <laughs> Heartbreaker, um, which is always quite nice to have that come all around. Um, but I second Emily's assertion that you know, the production design on Black Panther is really something and that film super des- deserves that. I mean, I always I always kind of little get a little, it's harsh, but I always get a little kind of uh, stuffy about period films set in the real world that get nominated for like production design and costume because it's nice mm. to recreate that, but that exists. You know what I mean? There's always stuff to, to, to kind of draw from, whereas like, you know, they made cool shit in Black Panther and, like, yeah. you know, it was just super exciting. I'm really doing a disservice to production designers of period films. I do realise that. Um, but, um, but fuck them. No. <laughs> Give the award to Black <laughs> Panther. And also, uh, Hannah Beechler is the first uh, African-American woman to be nominated in that category. Is that mm. right? Yes, yeah, she is. The other one that I feel that we can all agree on is uh, Rich D. Grant for Supporting Actor. Absolutely. If if only just because I absolutely love how grateful he is and how he has zero chill 
about being mm-hmm. nominated. Like everyone else seems, uh, and, and Olivia Coleman as well. I love that it's actually like us so-called like stiff upper lip Brits who are losing their shit. I think it's mm-hmm. lovely and has really brought back some of the sparkle to it because, and Lady Gaga as well, to be fair, like she's been really, you know, this, this is quite, quite the big deal for her. And I, and I like seeing people talking about it being a big deal. There's an amazing profile on uh, Glenn Close on uh, BuzzFeed at the moment. Um, and she seems like a super cool lady. And, you know, she rang around all the other women and, I think had like the best quote about awards and acting. And she said, you know, it's only really fair if you got us all to play the same role and then vote. And, you know, she, she's doing this big sisterhood and, you know, it doesn't really matter who wins. And I'm like, it does matter who wins though. Come on. Like we can't pretend that this is some kind of vacuum. It's, it's huge. It could really make, it's, it's a, I, I was going to say make someone's career not necessarily, but it's always going to be a point in history forever and ever that that person is linked to. And you can't pretend that that's somehow not a big deal. And it's just mm. lovely to see Richard D. E. Grant really embrace that. Um, mm. And you know that he would be even cool, like just, just full on cool. Cool if he wins, cool if he doesn't. But it's just lovely to see him be properly so excited and to be nominated does seem to mean enough for him. I love that. Whereas everyone else is kind of a bit po-faced and earnest and will continue mm. to be uh, for some time, I think. I don't know. Um, yeah, so um, as as everyone might be aware, uh, my heating's down and uh, Matt offline made the brilliant suggestion of why are you not covering yourself in deep heat? Um, so <laughs> if Rich D. Grant wins, um, I will cover myself in deep heat and um swig a bit of oven cleaner and you mm. can't really get better than that can you mm. it, uh, it's weird because we're all so chuffed for rich d grant because you know he's an incredibly likable uh individual anyway and you know he's had some travails in the sense that he's done some really good work but then he has you know turned up in some absolute dross for years and years and years and slugged it away and he's finally getting recognition because he's a wonderful actor. He's a really, really great actor. Um, and no one in Britain can see this film because yeah. it's not out for like another two months or something stupid. Yeah. Um, and and it's a great movie. He's absolutely fantastic in it. I think that I've heard. Can, you ever, <laughs> can You Ever Forgive Me, I think, deserved way more than it's got. But I'm very pleased that it got, you know, uh, Miss McCarthy is great in it. And I'm glad she's got a Best Actress nom. And I was glad it got an adapted screenplay, which is very much the, oh, well, we like this movie, but, you know, it's not really for us, but we'll give you a nomination uh, award, which is something, I guess. But, yeah, he is he is absolutely wonderful in it. And I think uh, if we can't have Hugh, we'll settle for Richard E. Because <laughs> Paddington 2, shout out. <laughs> yeah, absolute lockdown. Can I also just say, Rich D. Grant also gets um, top props for not only having committed to have been in a film with a woman director, but shouting loudly at every opportunity why Mariel Heller hasn't been recognised, nominated, even even um, kicking off when a security person at an event didn't believe that she was the director of her film. Mm. Um, so top uh, top feminist ally points to him. Yeah, mm. yeah, 
totally. And yeah, Mario Heller. I've only seen her debut, The Diary of a Teenage Girl. So mm-hmm. good. Uh, which is fucking great. Um, yeah. So yeah, please release Can You Ever Forgive Me in England, please. I would like to see it, please. Mm. If her Mr. Rogers movie hits next year, maybe they'll give her a makeup nomination. But mm, they're uh, not nominated for something and a reward of something terrible like The Departed, like, you know, years later. Yeah. I'm, ju- I'm just uh, saying. Yeah, that's kind of how they do it, which is mm. uh, a shame. Um, what do we think? Obviously, you know, we've talked about Best Picture being kind of blah and there being sort of picks here and there in individual ca- categories that we, we like, but maybe not them overall. What What do we think are the strongest categories overall? Um, for me, uh, the one that I liked the most was uh, Best Animated Feature because it features two movies that are in my personal top five for the year, Mirai and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. And then, you know, Incredibles 2, Ralph Brakes, The Internet and Isle of Dogs, which are movies that uh, I I liked uh, a great deal in every instance and found very interesting. And whilst I have kind of two very clear favourites from that category, I think it's there's not one in that bunch that I would say that didn't deserve to be in there. I think they're all... Uh, really interesting and and also in terms of the category as a whole it's nice that you have a couple of computer animated a stop motion and a hand-drawn animated movie in there so at least there's a uh, uh, the breadth of animation is represented a little bit Mm, that's a very tough category because um spider-man was probably my favorite film of last year a very late Mm. entry they're all pretty good i think mariah is the only one i've not seen but i'd like to see spider-man um, kind of get something because I also feel like Phil Lord and Christopher Miller had a bad year. Um, <laughs> I feel like they need to come out of it with something. Well, they had a they had a good year in that they weren't attached to Solo ultimately. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, they dodged a bullet there. Yeah, they ended they ended the year reasonably strong, but yeah, like for the first six months or so, it's like that Star Wars movie you could have directed coming out. It's got a sting pretty bad, and then yeah, mm. no one cared about Solo. No, apart from the people uh, who put together the best visual effects Oscar, because that mm. got itself a nomination there. With uh, we can now say that this year's Suicide Squad, I guess, is probably Ready Player One. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. One of the most visually noisy movies ever made. <laughs> uh, as someone on Twitter pointed out, they really wanted to give a nominee nomination for the movie that gave us a kind of like Catwoman with massive breasts. Which uh, is featured at one point in that movie, and mm. you know, I guess furry representation is important. It is. Four oh, percent of films now have to have, to be, have some kind of furry <laughs> representation. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm I'm committed to it. Are you two? Sure, I'm gonna. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm gonna work with someone dressed as a mouse. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because I, right. I could think I could dominate them. <laughs> this I really get my way so on the project. Yeah, this is going right, so ra- Raping corpses, <laughs> furry representation, and here was me just thinking it was going to be a family-friendly episode about them Oscars. How wrong mm. I was! It's the Oscars that led us there for nominating <laughs> a truly not very good movie in the form of Ready Player One. I don't think we've really reckoned of how bad that movie is. Yeah, yeah, it's really poor. Because I got to the end of the year and I still haven't published my top list of movies yet, which I'm going to do at some point. But, you know, I have all of my movies kind of 
uh, arranged in order on Letterboxd anyway, so I can keep track of them throughout the year. And like, I got to the end of the year, and I was just like, yeah, Ready Player One was just the worst. Like, it's not the worst made, but it's just the one that I just had the absolute worst time watching and just walked away thinking, oh, God, why? Why Spielberg? Why? You're you're considerably better than this. Yeah, it makes no sense. Why would you do it? Needed a hit and kind of got one, which is even worse. Yeah, that is worse. Um, Is there any films that we all between us are surprised to see not having a stronger showing? Uh, if Beale Street could talk, and First Man, because I was, mm. and you and I talked about this, Emily, how oh. we were looking forward to a rematch, uh, Jenkins and Chiselle rematch. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just sad that didn't happen. It just hasn't happened, no. Because uh, I really love If Beale Street Could Talk. I think it's an absolutely brilliant movie. And I haven't seen First Man yet, but by all accounts, I'll probably like it more than La La Land. But yeah, it's just it's just weird that those two movies, which seemed so... Like on paper, it just seemed like they would be such juggernauts. Just it just hasn't happened for them. It seemed to have everything going for it, didn't it? Um, first man, but mm. I, don't, I don't. It just it disappeared. Without, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it didn't do very well at the uh, at the box office. Yeah, um, and it just kind of sunk without a trace. And it was released quite, you know, it doesn't it didn't have that heat coming into it, did it? No. But then something like Bohemian Rhapsody, which is, I mean, I've not seen it. And, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons why I won't. Yeah, I mean, there's one reason why I won't. Yeah. And, yeah, that has that came out ages ago, and that's still going. Um, because mm. it's done well. It's, it's, you know, had some longevity. You know, people like Queen, I guess. And it stayed in the consciousness when it came to, you know, people picking their nominations. Whereas First Man seemed to be like, oh, shit, do we have a, a film this year from the director of Whiplash? Um, and La La Land that starred Ryan Gosling as a spaceman. Yes, mm-hmm. we did. Yeah. That should that that is that is pretty much just Oscar bait. As soon as soon as we heard about it, it was happening, I was like, "Well, I'm not going to be interested in that film. That's Oscar baiting." But all mm. of a sudden, that appears to be the one film that everyone's saying, "Oh, actually, it maybe got the short shrift and was actually pretty interesting." Um, but everyone forgot about it. Yeah, I, I was also. I was kind of surprised that Ethan Hawke didn't get nominated for First Reformed. Yeah. Like, it wasn't a movie that had the strongest campaign overall, but like, if you were to say what are the two elements of this that you think will get attention, it would have been the screenplay, which obviously was nominated, and Ethan Hawke's performance, because he's in basically every shot of that movie, <laughs> and it is really about you know what he can convey through his performance and... Uh, whether it's his physicality, whether it's his voiceover, you know, he really does bring a huge amount to that movie. And I'd say that, you know, first of all, maybe not a huge campaign, but surely bigger than Willem Dafoe as Vincent van Gogh <laughs> in At Eternity's Gate. No, is yeah. that just me? And don't get me wrong, I love Dafoe. He is, he's, he's the best. But like, what? Who's, oh, Jesus. Matt's loving my my whip smart quips tonight. Um, like, it's the cold; it's slowly killing me. <laughs> yeah, let's let's blame the cold, shall we? Um, I'll I'll happily stick with that. But at Eternity's Gate, I mean, it's it's difficult for us as we keep saying. There's a lot of these films that we haven't seen that we want to see. That there's just so much talking about 
particularly in America, if or when we'll get to see them, we don't know, at Eternity's Gate, I, I don't know. I'm, and I'm, I'm not saying that it's it's good or bad off the back of that, because I can't even tell. But it's just weird, mm. because First Reformed does seem to have had, just be that much further in, in the foreground, I thought. But no, is, is Willem mm. just always going to be another bridesmaid and never the bride like Glenn Close I don't know lead, lead actor is is the most meh category for me mm. completely this year whereas lead actor is actually is pretty scintillating mm. I, I do wonder if they'll give it to Defoe because they should have given it him for the Florida project yes mm. which would be such a weird uh, a, a weird make right for them <laughs> just of like the 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 movie that literally that hardly anyone has ever seen it's like in in that and the wife in best actress there's like two movies nominated which if you told me they weren't real movies i probably believe you because yes. it's like they were movies that just had no buzz or attention prior to award season and no one's paid any attention to and suddenly they're represented in most of the major ones and i'm sure mm. the performances are very good but neither of those movies really seem to trouble anyone's uh, the box office all that much or anyone's top 10. Mm. It was interesting that Emily mentioned about, you know, the kind of campaigning for stuff. Did you see Boots Riley talking mm. um, the day of the nominations? And he was like, I appreciate everyone's, you know, concern of saying, you know, you were, you know, uh, sorry to bother you with snubbed and it's, you know, an Oscars so white thing and it's showing that, like, you know, everyone's unaman- you know, unimaginative in Hollywood. And he was like, the truth is, we, did- we didn't run a campaign. Like, mm. and that matters. Getting, getting you know, screeners into the hands of people um, who will vote and will watch it is expensive, you know? And mm. this shit is, you know, sometimes it's not a snub. Sometimes it's just, you know, they didn't think, well, why would, you know, why would we go for it like you know doesn't it's not something they thought that would be worth chucking money at and here we are and he was just like happy that people saw his film Mm. i think you saw a little bit of that with widows as well but that's Mm. less because the people involved didn't want to win oscars because i'm sure they would be happy but more that the studio probably thought well this one didn't really catch fire in any way so Mm. we'll just not really uh bother which is a shame because that movie's got a lot of really really great stuff going on in it that uh, could have been could have been represented at the oscar but oscars but sadly wasn't hmm. so we end this episode as we end all our episodes with shot reverse shot recommends which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you listeners will enjoy as well emily what have you got to recommend for us this week i have for people with access to the bbc sounds app or online catch-up on radio 4 the scandi noir spoof angstrom Starring none other than uh, Garth Marenghi himself, Matt Holness. Uh, written by um, Joel Morris and Jason Hazley, um, who are also um, behind brilliant things, um, including Philomena Kunk um, and the Wonderful Rule of Three podcast, which is also absolutely worth checking out. Um, apparently they've adapted the four-part series um, from the best-selling Angstrom trilogy by Martin English, who's also known as Joran Svensson, which which shows you exactly the kind of uh, sense of humour that's on display here. You've also got people like um, Kevin Eldon involved, and um, the cast is just 
absolutely brilliant um and it is a really joyous studio um recorded so there's this kind of live buzz to it as well but it manages to like perfectly puncture Scandinoir. Um, Joel Morris and Jason Hazley also um, were co-writers on Touch of Cloth, um, mm. Charlie Brooker's um, takedown of a lot of um, your standard British gritty cop drama. Um, and they're just clearly having a whale of a time on this. And I think it's just a really lovely uh, couple of hours because it's all on. It's all ready to just binge. Um, and it's just really funny. Yeah. Cool. Matt, what have you got to recommend for us? Um, I'm going to call an audible on what I was going to recommend and save that for the future. Um, But because we talked about him earlier, um, I feel like it would be remiss of me not to recommend uh, Rich D. Grant's wonderful memoir, With Nails, um, which is one of the best... Um, film memoirs uh, you'll ever read. I, you know, people talk about The Moon is a Balloon by David Niffen, which is bloody great. But Richard E. Grant is um, pretty incredible because it starts with With Nan and I, because that really was the start with him. And it kind of tells a very interesting story of someone who suddenly finds himself very popular um, for a film that is <laughs> quite unusual. And if you, you know, list, read the, you know, the, the travails they went to to make. Uh, with Nail and I, and then hop him along. I think the next film he's in is like Warlock. Uh, and then to him finding himself as one of the only attendees of the rap party of Hudson Hawk is <laughs> quite, or the, it's actually the premiere party at Cannes of Hudson Hawk. It's a absolutely wonderful read that's hilarious. Um, and if you can, you know, you, we've all seen how likable and kind of effusive Richard E. Grant can be. And that book is you know, channels his style and energy quite wonderfully, um, and um, I don't, it doesn't run to Spice World, uh, so <laughs> you know don't get your hopes up. But um, it's uh, it's a pretty wonderful book um, about a pretty wonderful man, uh, and yeah, I'm going to recommend that this week. Fantastic! I'm going to recommend a TV show which I just started watching because it just got added to Hulu here in the US called Lodge 49, which is a comedy drama starring Wyatt Russell, who people probably know best from things like Everybody Wants Some or 22 Jump Street, and for being the son of Kurt Russell, I guess. But uh, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very good actor in his own right, and this is a really great vehicle for him. He plays a kind of chill stoner surfer, former surfer who lives in Long Beach, California. His life has fallen apart to a great extent, in the kind of like previous year before the show starts and he discovers a ring belonging to someone who belongs to a fraternity called the Lynx and he goes to their club and decides that he wants to join and uh, from there things kind of get funny and strange and weird and it's got an incredibly fun laid back vibe. I think it's it's very um, deliberately leaning into sort of the tone and style of something like The Big Lebowski, uh, but carrying that off really well rather than feeling like just a, a, a tired retread, which it could very easily have done. And I just think it's a real, really wonderful hidden gem, the sort of show that probably uh, wouldn't exist uh, outside of a peak TV and certainly wouldn't have got a second season because I don't think the first season was watched by too many people, but it was watched by... Uh, just enough people and uh, i think people should look out for it if it crops up on a, a different streaming service in the uk or some really uh, obscure channel further down the dial it's worth catching up on if you get the chance mm, cool 
If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, and leave us a review on iTunes uh, and recommend to your friends. That's the best way to help us grow our audience. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's a goodbye from me.